0: So if you ever wondered, uh, when you're reading your Bible, you've ever asked yourself, uh, what does Scripture say about itself? And, uh, we're going to learn from four or five different passages what Scripture says about itself and how that can be an encouragement to us when we sit down and read our Bibles, and how that can actually guide us as we're looking at our Bibles and asking ourselves why we're there in the morning. Um, we all know, and we're going to hear a little bit, and we're going to get into this in our discussion groups, that uh, we, we read our Bibles so that people can see Christ in us, so that we can love others with the love of, God, of Christ. Uh, but what we want to do today is just look this morning about what Scripture says about itself and how that can encourage us when we're reading our Bibles. So we know this passage, 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. A lot of times when I sit down and I open my Bible, I, I've, I've gotten up and I've got some thoughts that are on my mind and are on my heart. And um, maybe they're not always in alignment with the truth that I'm going to be reading in God's Word. Um, hopefully I'm, I'm reading my Bible very shortly after I wake up, but there are a number of things that cross my mind. Um, that I, that are running through my mind before I actually open my Bible in the morning. And it's very helpful for me to know that what I'm reading is, um, useful in my life. And it's useful for four things. It's useful for teaching. It has to help, God's Word helps me understand what is right. That what I'm reading this morning, when I'm reading my Bible, is something that can establish me in what is right. I've got so many competing thoughts and so many competing agendas in the world. And sometimes you're wondering what is right and what's not right. Well, Scripture itself tells you that Scripture is right because it is what is profitable for teaching. This is the basis of truth. So it's really helpful for me to remind myself sometimes, this is the truth that I need. But it's not only helpful for teaching me what is true, it's, it's helpful for correcting me. Because I've got lots of areas of my life that get out of line with what God has designed for me in my life. And every day when I get back to reading my Bible, um, I'm reading things that are correcting me, that are providing means of correction and areas of correction. When my sinful little mind wanders and my heart wanders without the truth, um, when I get in front of God's Word, God's Word corrects what I have allowed to veer off of what is straight and true. So it's really helpful for me to remember, Lord, your Word as I'm reading it this morning, is a corrective in my life. It's really helpful. I need this. And that helps me get from whatever I'm doing and whatever I'm thinking to why am I here because I need to be corrected. But it also tells me that God's word is very profitable for reproof. God's word is really helpful for reproof because not only does it tell me what is right and what is not right, God's word tells me how to get right. God's Word tells me not only, okay, you're out of line, but it, it tells me what I need to do to restore myself to being in alignment with who God is. So I tell myself, okay, so it, my, God's Word is going to expose something in my life, but He doesn't leave me there. God's Word actually gives me what I need to draw me back into a right relationship with God. And the last thing that God's Word does here that I find is really, really helpful is God's Word is profitable for training. So not only does it tell me what is right and what isn't right, and how to get right, but God's Word tells me how to stay right. And so when I'm reading my Bible, I say, Lord, this is what is going to provide me with the endurance that I need to persevere through every day. And so it's really helpful for me to remember that about God's Word. I want to share a couple of other passages, maybe ones that aren't quite as frontline and as well known, but they're certainly in our Bible and they are inspired and they're very helpful. So turn to Psalm 119. I want us to read uh, some just one verse in that psalm that tells us about God's Word, and it's verse 24. And uh, if you ever want to stop and ask yourself why you're reading God's Word, spend a little time in Psalm 119, and it'll give you 176 different reasons to read God's Word. Uh, verse 24 is very, very helpful. Psalm 119:24, 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And I can appreciate something only when I have a right understanding of it. You know, Something can't really be appreciated if you don't understand it rightly. So, Lord, would you give me the understanding of your word that will grow my delight in your word? Um, The believer is to delight in God's word. And sometimes I sit down and I realize I don't have what I need to truly comprehend God's word. God, help me to understand your word so that I can delight in it. And at that point, I'm ready for your word to counsel me and to lead me and guide me. So it's very helpful for me just to agree with God about my own need, my own need to actually understand the word, and I need that help from him so that I can actually use God's word and it can counsel me rightly in my time there in the morning. A couple other passages that are going to be really, really helpful. Um, I like Psalm 138, so turn a little to the right. This helps us understand what God thinks about his own word. And when we think about all the different sources of input that we can put in our life, we've got everything that's outside of the realm of spiritual things. Then we've got extra biblical Christian literature that's really good. And then we've got our Bibles. And this helps us understand what God thinks about his own word. Psalm 138. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. So this is a pretty godly guy. He is a guy who's worshiping. He's a guy who's very thankful for who God is. He's a guy who recognizes that there is truth. And then look at this at the end. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. This is the NAS and how it says it. Other translations render this a little differently. But you have magnified your word according to all your name. God's name is a representation of who he is. Uh, his name is all over the Old Testament. It's in lots of different places and lots of different ways. God is the God who heals. He has a Hebrew name that tells us I am the God who heals. God has a Hebrew name that tells us that he is the God who saves. God has a Hebrew name that says he is the God who sees, El Roy. He is the one who actually sees us. God has a name that tells us that he is our righteousness. He has all of these other things. These are attributes of God that are inherent in his name. His name tells us about all of who he is. And the greatest of all is Yahweh. God's name is I am. So that means that I exist outside of the context of time and space. My name is pretty impressive. It helps you understand a lot about me. But God says here, you have magnified your word according to all of your names. So as great as God's name is, he takes his word and he puts his word on the same plane and on the same level as his name because God's word is a representation of who he is. And so it's very helpful for me to remember in the morning, Lord, this is no simple book that I'm reading. This is a powerful, magnificent, divinely written book that God inspired godly men to write by putting his spirit in them and giving them the ability to write his truth for us. So it's very helpful for me to remember that. I just want to share one more. And this is again from the Old Testament. This is in Isaiah 66. And uh, let's go there. We're going to look at Isaiah 66, verse 2. And here again is God's testimony. But this isn't so much about his word. It's about the way we should disposition ourselves toward God's word. But the way we disposition ourselves towards God's word is a function of what is true about the word itself. God starts by telling us, okay, this is what the real situation is at the beginning of verse 2. My hand made all these things. And thus all things came into being, declares the Lord. So God is describing himself. He says, I'm the creator. I am the one who makes all things. Who are you? You are small in comparison to me. I'm the creator of all things. But this is who God looks to. God looks to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit. So God looks with favor upon the the humble man and the man who has contrition in his life. And he looks upon the man who trembles at God's Word. So God's Word is, is something that should be trembled at. We should be sobered when we read our Bibles in the morning. Um, it's We all have busy lives. We have something to do after we read our Bibles in the morning. Or we've had a busy, busy day in our life and we are spent after a full day of work and other big responsibilities and we sit down to read our Bibles in the evenings. Or maybe you read your Bible in the middle of your day because you've got a nice break there and that's what works the best for you and that's really good. We need to make sure that whatever our situation is, wherever we are in our day, whatever we've had before that time of reading with our, our Bibles open or whatever is coming next, we need to remember that God's word is of such a stature and such a nature that, that we should tremble at it. That we should be sobered by it. And so cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, help me with all of these things. When I read your word, help me to comprehend what it is that I'm reading and the power that it has to transform me and make me the kind of man that, that you have for me to be this week in my life. So I hope that's encouraging to you guys. I hope that's helpful when you sit down and read your Bibles. If you've got a really good um, strategy for drawing yourself into close fellowship with the Lord so that your time and your and your Bible reading is really, really fruitful, great. Keep doing whatever you're doing. If uh, if not, maybe these verses can help you and encourage you. And uh, praise God for that.
1: Good morning. and You guys have already spent time. You should be wide awake. Your coffee all have had time to process, and you guys should be very attentive, right? So let's go ahead and start off in prayer. Lord, so thankful for, for what you have done to save us. Lord, that you have provided your word for us to sit under, for you to communicate things to us. Lord, I do pray as we are in your word this morning that we would fear and tremble before your word, that we would humbly sit under your word, and that, Lord, it would bear much fruit in our lives, that you'd be pleased to do that, and Jesus, that you would get all the glory for it, and it's always in your great name we pray, amen. This morning, we're going to be talking about discipline number three, the ministry And specifically the practice of biblical relationships, specifically the one-anothers. And the one-anothers, we're going to be talking about relationships, specifically relationships within the local church. And the tool that we're going to use to do that is something called the one-anothers. If you've been a Christian for a while, you probably heard or perhaps even studied the one-anothers, and the one another's are a tool to survey scripture. It, they're, they're a tool to do this. They're a tool to do this to, to see how we are to practice biblical relationships in the local church. And the one another's don't capture everything about how believers relate to one another, but they are an extremely helpful tool. And so how did, how did we come up with the one another's? If you were to go out and Google the one another's, you would find uh, a number of different lists. Some of them vary a little bit. The way that I came up with this, what we're going to be going through this morning, is we studied this in my small group, and I think we spent like four plus years walking through them very slowly and specifically. And the way that I I came up with this was to uh, to study scripture, looking for this little adjective pronoun pair called one another. And in my English translation, the NAS, one another shows up 108 times in 101 verses in the New Testament. There are primarily two Greek pronouns that get translated into that little English phrase, one another. Some of the 101 verses are simply narrative passages explaining what's going on. Like in Mark chapter 8 verse 16, they began to discuss with one another that they had no bread. However, we want to look for the imperatives the commands or expectations for how believers relate to one another. There are one another's that don't apply. Matthew 24.10, betray one another, hate one another. Revelation 6.4, slay one another. Those are obviously not applicable. And so the results of filtering down all of this, all this list down into the commands relating to believers we get 38 different one another's contained in 59 different verses or passages. And there's some incongruity there because, for example, love one another shows up 14 times. The one another's are found in two different gospels, Mark and John. They're found in 16 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. And the vast majority of these commands are to be carried out within the local church. Look around. Tomorrow morning, look around. Tomorrow evening, look around. These are the people that you're to be carrying out these commands with. And my hope and desire is to provide some familiarity with the one another's so that they stand out in Scripture. So that you'll be practicing them or practicing them more effectively. Within the body, specifically within the body of Christ called Grace Bible Church. And my hope is, after going through this lesson, you'll see that the obedient Christian, you and me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers within the local church. And here, because I'm speaking to Grace Bible Church, this local church. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with one another in the local church. The one another's are essentially a manual for biblical relationships in the local church. And what we're not going to do is we're not going to pit against uh, other passages which talk about believers loving other believers in general or loving unbelievers. All of these passages coexist and complement each other well. But today we're going to focus on what God's word has to say about the one another's These specifically these biblical relationships within the local church. You guys should have had in your packet a page that looks something like this. Go ahead and dig it out because I'm going to be referencing it often as we walk through this. And you'll find six different categories, love, care, edification, service, humility, and unity. That's kind of where we've hung all the different 38 different one another's onto those. You'll also find all the verse references. So this can be a very good reference sheet in general, but we're going to be walking through these. And to help us do this, we're going to ask six questions to investigate how God wants us to practice biblical relationships within the local church. Question number one, how does God want us to practice loving one another? How does God want us to practice loving one another? The primary and single most important one another is to love one another. That command stands over and above all the others. It's like an umbrella that covers all of the other one another's. All of the other one another's flow out of this one. They flow out of a love for one another. The first passage we're going to go to uh, for love one another is found in john chapter 13 verse 34 so flip on over there and also just as an expectation you're going to be flipping up to a lot of passages here um, so be ready to do that john chapter 13 verse 34 and 35 in just to provide some context jesus is with his disciples they're in jerusalem they're in the upper room for the last supper he is hours away from going to the cross And here in this passage, Judas has already left. And Jesus is providing a new commandment to his disciples. Starting in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have a love for one another. I want you to see that word, love. When you read that word, what, what comes to your mind? Usually one of the first things I think about when I, when I think about love is the emotion or the feelings or the warm affections that I have for the people that I care about. Biblical love includes that, but it also includes so much more. A biblical love is one that loves the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's one that loves our neighbor as ourselves. It's a selfless love, a self giving love. That kind of love is one that transcends our circumstances. I also want you to notice something else about that word love it's a verb, it's an active verb. This love is a love of action. And in this use of love, that action is directed towards one another. And now Jesus provides a new commandment. It's new because it narrows the focus of the love. The disciples are not simply to have a love of neighbor. That's already been established in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40 and Leviticus 19, 18. Here they are to love one another. And the one another's here are the disciples, the 11 disciples, because Judas had already left. You, disciples, love the other disciples, love one another. Jesus did not give this command to the crowds. He did not give this command to all those that were following him. He gave this command specifically and intimately to the eleven. To the ones he had spent three years developing these very close, intimate relationships with. And these disciples are to love one another. Verse 34, that you love one another even as I have loved you. They're to love one another with a love that's modeled after the love that Christ had for them. What kind of love did Christ have for them? His love was unconditional. This 12 was not the easiest bunch to love. His love was humble. This is the creator, the king, becoming a man and spending three years with them. His love was merciful. He did not provide what they deserved. His love was gracious. He gave them and privileged them based on nothing that they had done. His love was patient. Regardless of what they did or said, he was patient with them. And they said a lot of foolish things, and he was patient. His love was self-giving. His love was selfless. His love was sacrificial. His love was demonstrated at great cost to himself. He loved them when they didn't love him. He loved them when he knew that they were going to abandon him in just a few hours as he went to the cross. The disciples were to have that kind of love for one another. And the results of this love for one another? Verse 35 By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another the world is going to know who these men love based on how they love one another. This love provides a witness and a testimony to the world. This new commandment that Jesus gives his disciples is a commandment for us. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. We're to have close, intimate relationships with fellow believers for the purpose of pouring out our love on them. Our love for one another stands as a witness to an unbelieving world of who we follow. Our love for one another draws attention to Christ. The love that we have and show with one another magnifies Christ. This love is the outstanding and essential mark of a Christian. Another passage with love one another is found in 1 John chapter 3. So flip on over there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. In here, context, John was writing, the apostle John was writing to the local churches, likely around Ephesus. And I'm going to start in verse 10 and go down through verse 23. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. For we we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life binding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Down to verse 23. This is his commandment, that we, lo- that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Verse 10, He who does not love his brother is not of God. Our love for one another is evidence that we are believers. Verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. Again, Our love for the brethren is evidence that we've been saved. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, Christ's supreme example, and the love that Christ displayed by laying down his life is an example for us. Verse 17, we love one another by providing for the worldly needs of our brethren. Verse 18, we love in deed and truth. Our love has action that is supported by and with God's word. And in verse 23, we love one another just as he commanded us. Another love one another is found, at least in my Bible, on the next page in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 10 tells us he loved us when we didn't love him. We actually hated him and rebelled against him. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent the perfect sinless one from heaven to earth to become human, to be born, and to live in this sinful, fallen world. And he sent him to be the propitiation, the wrath satisfying sacrifice for our sins. Not his sins, not everyone's sins, our sins, his people, his church. Jesus bore the wrath, the punishment for sins, for those that did not love him. In verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's love, again, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, merciful, gracious, enduring, costly. He provided for our greatest need, reconciliation, doing that for which we were helpless to do. And as we consider all these these three passages that we've gone through in light of all of this, what should my love for one another here look like? There needs to be others in my life here at GBC. I need to know what is going on in their lives so that I know how I can love them. I need to be always looking for ways to love them earnestly, consistently, constantly. My life, my love needs to be selfless with godly motivations. Everything that I have, time, knowledge, energy, possessions, are all the Lord's and need to be available to love one another. It may be costly, it's often inconvenient, it may be a sacrifice. And we are to spend our lives loving one another. This is how God wants us to practice loving one another here at GBC. Number two, how does God want us to practice caring for one another? And so on this handout, you'll find care. And under there, you'll find the different one another's related to that. Care for one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, comfort one another, pray for one another one another. We're going to tackle care for one another found in first Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. So flip on over there. The context for this verse, first Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, the context for this verse is all of chapter 12 and Paul's address. And here Paul's addressing, uh, the local church here at Corner, and he's dealing with division in the body in the Corinthian church. they had factions over who is baptized by who, and now Paul is addressing division within the body, division within the church because of spiritual gifts. And Paul here is talking about unity of believers as one body in Christ, not as individuals, but unified for the common good. The different members of the body are necessary. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. For even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. At the foot says, Because I'm not a hand, I am not a part of the body. Is it? It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, Because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lack, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Paul here in verse 24, says that God is so composing the body so that there would be no division, but that the members would have the same care for one another. Paul's contrasting division with care for one another. And Paul provides two examples of this in verse 26, two examples of this unity that we have in suffering and in rejoicing. And when I I think about this over the years, how that has demonstrated itself here in the body, when, when there's been tragedy and suffering uh, for various reasons, the way that the body has come alongside those, when somebody has a tragedy or something or is suffering, we all feel that. We are all driven to pray for, and if we know the person closely, we, we are able to walk for them, care for them, in, in ways that a lot of others can't. And we get an opportunity to rejoice. And you see that on Sunday mornings when we announce a wedding that had taken place. We've not had any examples of that recently, have we, Jonathan? Um, And when there's new babies, we hold them up and do the Lion King moment. And when there's an adoption that has taken place recently, we get to rejoice. And the whole body gets to partake in that and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And so that unity that we have, suffering with those who suffer and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, God puts different members in the body with different skills and resources, with different capacities for the purpose of providing the same care for the body. God doesn't want division or factions. He wants everyone unified, caring for those that are suffering, and unified around rejoicing for those that are rejoicing. Another way that God wants us to practice caring for one another is to bear one another's burdens. And that's found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Put one over there. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul's providing this command to the local church found in Galatia. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This passage is dealing with sin and temptation and restoration. To bear means to carry something burdensome, to carry something with endurance. And burden is a heavy load which is difficult to carry or to lift. And believers are in the local church are being called to walk with a fellow believer and help them bear that burden of sin and temptation, ultimately unto repentance and restoration. Sin and temptation are significant burdens, and we need help. We need help from one another. This is not simply a pastor's job, it is the job of all of us. One of my former pastors said, You're either bearing a burden or you're helping someone else bear theirs. These are the ways that we get to practice caring for one another. Number three, how does God want us to practice edifying one another? Going back to this sheet under edification, you'll find build up one another admonish one another speak truth to one another speak to one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs encourage one another seek after that which is good for one another stimulate one another to love and good deeds we're going to go ahead and look at build up one another found in first corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 so flip on over there first corinthians chapter First thessalonians chapter 5 sorry First Thessalonians five eleven is where our one another is found, but I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. These believers had questions and concerns about the day of the Lord and when it was going to take place. So Paul proceeds to encourage them and build them up. He explains truth about believers that they're not in darkness. They're not overtaken. They're not destined for wrath. They're destined for salvation in Christ. They are sons of light, sons of the day. Therefore, since for unbelievers, there's wrath, and since for believers, there's no wrath, encourage and build up one another is what Paul is exhorting them to, commanding them to. And Paul actually did encourage them and build them up as he worked through this passage. He gave them the truths that they needed to be considering and thinking and dwelling on. And to do this, for us, this assumes that we're in close communication with believers, that we spend time with them so that we can build them up, so that we can encourage them. Another way that God wants us to practice edifying one another is to admonish one another. And this is found in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. In concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. The word here for admonish, some translations may say instruct, is the word nutheteo, which may seem familiar to some of you, as you've heard of nuthetic counseling, biblical counseling. This simply means to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct, to admonish, to warn, to instruct. But this is not simple instruction for knowledge's sake. It's instruction with the purpose of having, having someone avoid or cease doing something. And when this is done, is this done with our own authority? When we admonish someone? No, this is to be done with God's authority. This is to be done with God's scripture. With God's word. This is lovingly going to your brother or sister and warning them about something that needs to cease or something that they need to avoid. And we're to do this with one another. And Paul is affirming, look back at verse 14, and able also to admonish one another. I am convinced, dot, 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 that you are able also to admonish one another. Paul's affirming these Roman believers are able to do this with one another. All believers bear the responsibility to admonish one another. Again, this is not just the elders and deacons. This is all of us with one another, and we are commanded to do this. As Paul affirms here, that these believers were equipped to do so, and so are we. And if the body here at GBC is doing this faithfully, what is an implication of that? We're going to be admonished. If the body here is faithfully doing this and admonishing one another, eventually we're going to be on the other end of that and we're going to be admonished. And when that happens, we need to have soft, humble hearts, quick to listen, slow to speak, and hear what God's word has to say about some aspect of our lives that we need to avoid or stop doing. And likely it's not going to be done perfectly when somebody brings that to us, and that's all right. We can trust the Lord with that. And likely none of us wants to be confrontational. We love to be encouraging. Everybody likes to be encouraging, right? And none of us, but if one of our brothers or sisters is actually in sin, what is the most loving thing that we can do for them? We can shine light on it. We can expose it and lovingly admonish them for it. Those are the ways that God wants us to practice edifying one another. Number four, how does God want us to practice being humble with one another? Again, referring to the handout, under humility, you'll find give preference to one another, be subject to one another, regard one another as more important than yourself, confess your sins to one another, be humble toward one another. And we're going to start by uh, tackling give preference to one another found in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, second half of verse 10 and this command obviously is given to the believers of the church of rome and this section of romans has some 25 exhortations for believers And our particular passage our particular verse uh, is dealing more with the family relationships and specifically the family of god the second half of chapter 12 verse 10 give preference to one another in honor Give preference to one another in honor. Some translations may say outdo one another in showing honor. This give preference or outdo means to do with eagerness. Do exceedingly. Lead the way. Go before. Precede to prefer. Honor means high respect and high esteem. This is to show genuine appreciation and admiration for fellow believers by putting them first. We are to be proactive and go before so that we can give them honor. This is showing genuine appreciation and admiration for one another in the family of God. Quick to show respect. Quick to show admiration. Quick to acknowledge the accomplishments of others. Quick to show genuine love by not being jealous or envious. What would be an obstacle to doing this well? Ourselves? Our pride? It takes humility to get outside of ourselves, to see others at all, let alone to see them first. Another way that God wants us to practice being humble with one another is to confess your sins to one another. And that's found in James chapter 5, verse 16. Looking over there. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Confess means simply to make an admission of wrongdoing or sin. It's to confess, it's to admit. And we're commanded to do this continually with one another. This is not something that we desire to do in and of ourselves. Sin wants to stay hidden. Sin wants to stay private, Sin wants to stay secret. And you, when you mix in our pride with it, we can often run away from confession. God wants my sin and your sin exposed. And he wants it dealt with in the loving fellowship of other believers. And this is God's kindness. God's kindness that he's not going to just simply expose our sin to the world. He wants it dealt with in the small, intimate context of other believers. And similarly, in Matthew 18, that's why God puts those concentric circles of those who know about the sin. God wants to protect the sinner and have the sin... He he wants the sin exposed. He wants the sin repented of. He wants that sinner restored. And he tries to do as uh, much as possible to limit the exposure. And so he's created these little uh, intimate relationships to do that. And so... Here, God provides the command to confess our sin to one another, and it's God's kindness that he does that. And to do this one another, we need to be in close, intimate relationships to humbly practice this one another with each other. Number five, how does God want us to practice serving one another? Again, referring to the handout, it says, serve one another, be hospitable to one another, wash one another's feet. We're going to look at serve one another, found in First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10, is where that one another is found. I'm going to start reading in verse 8, and then go through verse 11 above all keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of god whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of god whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which god supplies so that in all things god may be glorified through jesus christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever amen Out of a fervent love for one another, we are to serve. Serve here, that word is diakoneo, which is where we get the word for deacon. That's a personal service, a discharge of loving service. And in Greek culture, this word had the meaning of waiting tables. And for the Greeks, this service was looked down upon as undignified. They would have said, we are born to rule, not serve. Our service to one another is out of a love for one another. And it can be very humbling. It can also be very exhausting. And as we serve one another, pouring ourselves out for one another, we are serving, like verse 11 says, by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Our loving service to and for one another is all about the other person. It's done in God's strength, and it's all to be done to the glory of God. Another way that God wants us to practice serving one another is to wash one another's feet, and that's found in John chapter 13. So we're back in John chapter 13 again. John chapter 13, verse 14 is where that's found. And again, the context here is in the upper room with the the disciples for the Last Supper. But this is prior to Judas leaving. So all 12 of them are present. I'm going to read starting in verse 3 and go down through verse 16. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered and said to him, "'What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter.' Peter said to him, "'Never shall you wash my feet,' Jesus answered him, if I do not wash it, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet, and taken his garments, and reclined at the table again. He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. In Israel, there was dirt and dust everywhere. And it was not uncommon for this dust to be upwards of an inch thick. And when it rained, it would turn to mud. And wearing only sandals, their feet would get really dirty. And at the entrance of every Jewish home, there would have been large pots of water so that people that came in could wash their feet. And for a slave, this was the most menial task that they were given to wash the feet of all the guests. And when Jesus and the disciples arrived in the upper room, there was no slave to perform this task. One of the twelve should have offered to do it, but the twelve were too busy arguing about which one of them was the greatest, found in Luke 22, verse 24. They were too busy being selfish, thinking about their perceived greatness to realize the humble service that needed to be done. So Jesus, the God of the universe, the king, who had already humbled himself by coming to earth, took another step even lower. Jesus, by his example, displayed incredible, humble service that the disciples were to do in a like manner with each other. We're to get low, and follow our Lord's humble example of service to one another. We don't want to exactly have a dirty feet problem like they did then, but there are plenty of menial tasks, humble tasks that we can serve one another with. And when I think about this one another and the humble menial tasks that are done, I think about Johnny Beckman who some of you, many of you may know or remember, uh, who passed away a number of years ago. He served every single person in this body, and yet when he died, most people were like, Who was that? He served humbly, he served transparently. He did the menial tasks around the church that we take for granted cleaning bathrooms, do, taking out garbage, doing those things that nobody on a Sunday morning thinks about. He did that humbly, joyfully, faithfully, and served every single person in this body. And when he died, people, I had multiple people say, who, who, who is that? He didn't do it for recognition. He did it to serve unto the Lord. And so those are the that's the kind of humble service that we get to practice, we're commanded to practice with one another. Number six. How does God want us to practice being unified with one another? And under unity, you'll find on our handout, be devoted to one another. Let us not judge one another. Be of the same mind as one another. Accept one another, greet one another, wait for one another. Do not consume one another. Let us not challenge one another. Let us not envy one another. Show tolerance for one another. Bear with one another. Do not lie to one another live in peace with one another do not speak against one another do not complain against one another fellowship with one another so our first passage we're going to go to is be devoted to one another and that's found in Romans chapter 12 verse 10 so we're going to cover the first half of that verse Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Some translations, instead of saying devoted, may say love. But this isn't the same love that we've been talking about. The Greek word behind devoted means the natural love that occurs within the family. This kindred love, the warm affections that are reserved for the family. And it could be translated lovingly love. The Greek word behind brotherly love is a word that you all know. It's Philadelphia. It's Philadelphia. That word literally means love a brother or sister, blood relative. The affection, tender, kind, caring, concerned, warm feelings and affections that one has for a blood relative. And if you put all this together, one might translate this, be lovingly loving with one another with loving love. It's a lot of love. And that's why I'm not a translator. Believers are to be devoted to each other, having affections and love for each other that are reserved for blood relatives, for immediate family, brothers, sisters, parents, children. And here, Paul applies that kind of love, that family love, to Christians. Believers are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one father. We have been adopted as children into the family of God. There are things that I will do and say with a close family member that I wouldn't just simply say or do with a friend. But how much unity are we to have within the family unit that God has ordained Husbands, wives, parents, children, brothers, sisters. That's the relationship that we have here with each other, with one another here in the local church that's GBC. We're commanded to have those warm, familial affections for one another. Another way that God wants us to practice being unified with one another is to let us not judge one another. And that's found in Romans 14, verse 13. Romans 14, verse 13. In. The context for this verse is actually all of, like, chapter 14. Chapter 14 is dealing with conscience, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse thirteen, therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. There are two issues that Paul addresses in this chapter. One is dealing with food and the other is dealing with certain days being regarded as more important than others. There are weak believers and there are strong believers. The strong believers can have an attitude of contemptuous superiority and the weak believers can have an attitude of self-righteousness. And Paul provides the command not to judge one another. These issues are are in the area of Christian liberty and practice. These areas are neither commanded nor forbidden by Scripture. They are personal preference and historic tradition and not doctrinal or moral compromise. God has accepted both the strong and the weak believer. And if God himself does not make an issue with such, what right do his children have to do so? That doesn't mean we don't talk about our preferences, but we don't hold our preferences as though they were biblical principles. And we don't judge our brothers and sisters that don't hold the same preferences. And we don't regard them with contempt. That's another way that we get to practice being unified with one another, is to not judge each other's preferences. We've investigated six different questions on how God wants us to practice these biblical relationships here within the local church, specifically here within GBC. So let me ask a few more questions. Can one be obedient to scripture and not practicing the one another's? Can one be obedient to scripture and not practicing the one another's? Can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged in to a local church? Can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged in to a local church? Can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's day? can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's day? We all live in America, and this country is very consumeristic. We're impacted by it. We can't get away from it. And given that, it's very easy to bring a consumeristic view into the church. And it can be common to only focus on what I get out of a relationship, a Bible study, what I get out of a small group, or even what I get out of a worship service. I view how well something is going based solely on what I felt I got out of it. And this is a view of relationships in the local church that scripture does not support. The obedient Christian, you and me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers here at GBC. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with the people here at Grace Bible Church. And here at Grace Bible Church, the primary vehicle we have for fostering these biblical relationships and practicing them is small groups. And small groups are, you know, Smed taught a a number of weeks ago where we take a subsection of the church and we didn't want to call them subsection groups because that just doesn't flow as well. Small is not necessarily an adjective that describes how large they are. Um, But we have small groups, and that is a place where we want to foster these close, intimate relationships so that we can care for one another, so that we can provide this one-another care and have these intimate relationships within the local church. So that we get to know others better, so they get to know us better. And I am so thankful that God has composed the body and put us in relationship to one another. I'm so thankful that he's provided so much instruction for how we're to live out the Christian life with one another. I'm so thankful for believers here at GBC that I get to have close, intimate relationships with, and I get the opportunity to practice these one another's with. And if you've been here for any amount of time, I'm sure you've experienced the love, care, edification, service, and humility, and unity that you have with fellow believers here at Grace Bible Church. And as you men go forward you guys need to lead in this discipline. You need to lead and set yourself up, your relationships, your families up so that you can provide this one another care for one another here at Grace Bible Church. You need to employ those circumstances that God has you in, all the different aspects, time, resources, possessions, everything, employ those to love, care, and provide for all these different biblical relationships that we have here at Grace Bible Church. So, Hopefully, this has provided some familiarity with one another's so that they stand out in scripture, so that you'll be practicing them or practicing them more effectively here within the body, specifically the body of Christ called the Grace Bible Church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had sitting under your word. I do pray that it would bear much fruit in our lives, fruit here in Grace Bible Church. Jesus, for your glory. And it's always in your great name we pray. Amen.